0: Philips and Massimo have teamed up to provide a non-invasive, continuous hemoglobin monitoring solution that seamlessly integrates into your critical care workspace. The solution combines the innovative monitoring capabilities of Philips Intelliview with advanced Massimo Rainbow Set technology to provide real-time visibility to changes or lack of changes in a patient's hemoglobin concentration. To learn more, visit Philips.com slash Massimo.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kyle Enfield. Today, I will be speaking with Sheila A. Alexander, BSN, PhD, RN, FCCM, on keeping the brain cool after brain bleeds. Dr. Alexander is Associate Professor of Nursing and Critical Care Medicine at the University of Pittsburgh in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So before we start, do you have any disclosures to report? No, I have nothing to disclose. I think it'd be really helpful for the listeners if you could give us a brief overview of uh, targeted temperature management and sort of its history.
2: Um, That's a really interesting uh, question and story. Temperature management has been utilized for a variety of purposes in medicine and healthcare over time. If you go back as far as 2780 BC, um, the Egyptian physician Imhotep use local cooling to improve healing. And indeed, Hippocrates, the father of medicine, also used cooling to treat a multitude of conditions. Now, most of these weren't really related to preserving brain function, but more for packing of wounds or other types of problems. The first use of hypothermia, really, to preserve brain function that I've been able to find was actually an accident in 1650. There was a woman named Anne Green, uh, who was she was only in her 20s, but she was found guilty of infanticide, and as the custom, she was uh, sentenced to death for that and hung in the town square in a cold day in December. The following day, when she arrived at the dissection table they found she had a pulse, and so the physicians at the time were incredibly excited about that. They brought her back and treated her for um, a week or two until she actually was well enough to uh, leave their, their care, and she wound up being pardoned for her crime of infanticide, and she went on to marry and have a family. Moving to sort of more recent history of hypothermia um, in the 1800s, William Osler was actually the first to use hypothermia to treat typhoid fever and successfully decrease the mortality from that. And then in more recent years, like the 1930s and 40s, um, Dr. Temple Fay began to use hypothermia more systematically to treat pain in patients with metastatic cancer. Um, Dr. Fay's work really paved the way for current use of hypothermia for a couple of reasons. Um, one was that he was the first to actually conduct culture work to show the effects of hypothermia on cells, um, also developed the very first cooling blanket, which is quite similar to the cooling blankets that are used today. After that, in the 1950s, therapeutic hypothermia um, focused more on how it could be used after cardiac arrest and saving brain after cardiac arrest and ultimately the very first guidelines in the early to mid-60s written by the late Peter Saffern and some other leaders in the field, they recommended using hypothermia for brain protection. So that sort of was the start of research in hypothermia as it started to become used more in the Uh, 1960s and 70s, the complications of using it um, in humans and for any period of time, the complications that we see were identified. Um, So a lot of the 70s and 80s were focused on trying to limit or treat these complications. Um, and, And they've contributed to our current protocols that make it a more feasible treatment today. Additionally, back in the 1980s, there were a lot of technologic advancements, and they, that has contributed to current-day hypothermia protocols because it, it, there are a lot of new devices now that make it easier to cool patients faster and maintain that target temperature much more consistently. So that has really promoted more research on efficacy of therapeutic hypothermia, and specifically in conditions other than cardiac arrest, or in addition to cardiac arrest, um, any condition really where the brain's been damaged, we, we think that maybe hypothermia could be a good treatment option. Um, there are currently a few different concepts uh, that it's probably important to talk about. I've, I use the term therapeutic hypothermia a lot. Um, it is an older term preventative hy- hypothermia is also an older term these are just terms that suggest we should lower the temperature to a target temperature um, and then maintain it there the more recently and this is probably about 10 or 15 years ago the term targeted temperature management came into use and it's really the preferred term because it covers a really broad range of uh, hypothermia and managing temperature so it includes, Um, use of pharmacologic as well as medical devices to induce a cold state, such as hypothermia, but also just maintaining euthermia after a brain insult. We do know that targeted temperature management and hypothermia in particular have many effects to promote preserving the brain. It does protect the blood brain barrier, it decreases cerebral blood flow, and decreases metabolic rate of the brain. It reduces release of excitatory amino acids and reactive oxygen species, as well as suppressing inflammation. And some really recent research suggests it modifies apoptosis in a positive way. So there is appropriate cell death, um, but not excessive cell death, or at least limiting some of that excessive cell death. Um, specifically, in the intracerebral hemorrhage population, which we'll talk about today, targeted temperature management has been found to decrease perihematomal edema and ultimately result in a better functional outcome. Although this is there's a lot of animal work proving these things, but in humans there are a few small studies, but not yet randomized clin- clinical trials. There are a couple randomized clinical trials in intracerebral hemorrhage underway right now.
1: It's a fascinating history. What got you interested in this topic?
2: Um, well, I have to say, I'm a nurse and I practiced in neurocritical care for a very long time before I came into uh, academic nursing, where now I do research in neurologically injured populations and um, do teaching and a whole bunch of other fun stuff. But uh, my interest in hypothermia is really based on that clinical time many years ago, because we were just starting to use hypothermia. Um, I had some experience in uh, a very minimal one or two patients where we tried it uh, when they had had subarachnoid hemorrhage, and then certainly some traumatic brain-injured patients. Um, I was involved at the staff level, the bedside nurse staffing level, in therapeutic hypothermia, of some of the t- TBI studies early on.
1: And from there, how have you uh, approached this uh, clinically in your own pr- practice and in your teaching?
2: Well, right now, I think I do speak a lot about hypothermia. I shouldn't say a lot, but I frequently speak about hypothermia um, and just in terms of how it can protect the brain and improve outcomes. Because I think when, it's particularly if you look at the cardiac arrest literature, it has really advanced um, the care protocols and led to significantly improved outcomes. So I've worked with uh, uh, some doctoral students and some others just in trying to figure out what is the best way to cool someone um, and what are the the populations that it should be used in.
1: You mentioned that this is currently being studied in a randomized controlled fashion for intracranial hemorrhage. Uh, What do you think we will see from those trials and when can we expect to see some results?
2: In my crystal ball, it tells me that we will find the same thing we found in the animal models and that it works and we get better functional outcomes um, and that we also get better cellular level outcomes. Um, But in the more practical side of things, I'm hopeful that we see at least a a slight significant increase in outcomes. So it's something that can actually help patients have a better life better quality of life it's not i don't think it's going to be like a a magic wand that returns people just to their normal functioning but hopefully it can lead to better quality of life than current outcomes for patients that have had an intracerebral hemorrhage and i think those studies are still recruiting so it's probably a, a while before we start to see that show up in the literature
1: So for those people who are listening to this podcast, do you think that uh, this is something they should consider in this population, or should they uh, stay tuned for more uh, results to come from these trials?
2: That's a tough question. I think it's probably, if if it's someone, if you're comfortable in managing hypothermia and and monitoring, because there are some, you know, you do need to monitor lab values, you have to be careful about how cold you let someone get and how you get them there. And then certainly rewarming is really important um, to have that be very controlled. But if you're comfortable doing those things and monitoring and managing some of the aberrant lab values you might find and clotting uh, um, variants, changes in hemodynamics and, and internal physiologic Events. If you feel comfortable monitoring those, um, I think it's a fairly safe procedure to do in the right hand. So I think that it's probably a good thing to try because right now we don't have other really good therapies to improve outcomes after intracerebral hemorrhages.
1: You talk about the uh, management strategies. If a program is thinking about bringing targeted temperature management to their ICU, What are the things that they should be thinking about and what are the resources available to them to develop these programs?
2: Um, I think one of the best resources is a set of guidelines published by Neurocritical Care Society, and they spell out uh, the how-to, it gives a pretty nice protocol. They did a very extensive literature search and came up by consensus with these guidelines that give you a framework to start selecting what patients it might be ideal for, um, how to cool, how to maintain that, side effects to watch for, and lab values you need to keep an eye on. It also gives you a framework for how to approach those complications when they do happen. So I think that is a great place to start in just looking at that protocol. Um, they, they're they specifically written, um, with the purpose of, of giving people a tool to maintain euthermia and control fever, as well as control refractory increased intracranial pressure. So intracranial pressure uh, elevations that are not responsive to a more traditional therapies. Um, but the the guidelines are really about a how to. So I think it gives you a good protocol or a good start for your protocol, I do think it's important to get really strong buy-in from all of your staff, as well as administration. It is extremely labor-intensive to get someone cool and then keep them cool. Some of the time is, is can be alleviated or reduced with certain types of cooling devices or cooling methods, but they are all pretty time-consuming, and it's something that requires a lot of attention. You have to have really committed and vested nursing staff who can monitor what's happening and be responsive either to change the settings, uh, change lab values, and also bring in other healthcare professionals. So it really is a multidisciplinary approach to making that happen.
1: So as you've talked to other people about this and in your own experience, What sort of barriers have you seen uh, to implementation in a ICU?
2: Well, I think one of the biggest barriers really is figuring out how to cool and then maintain cool or uh, maintain a target temperature of a patient. Um, It is not easy to cool someone. Back when we first started hypothermia in the ICU, when I first saw it at least, um, we started doing ice water baths and packing people in ice, and that was really uh, well. Now we know that's the probably the least effective way, maybe outside of just letting putting a fan on the patient. Um, but it it, it's, it was very hard to get people there. Now we have these newer devices that there are um, machines that uh, where you can place special intraarterial or intravenous catheters that will cool the blood. Um, and those are awesome. They get people to temperature very fast, and they maintain that temperature. Many of them actually have a thermometer device that feeds back so that once you set your target temperature, you don't really need to worry. It will keep that patient right at target temperature. Unfortunately, they are ex- incredibly expensive. So it's, I think it's a cost analysis. You have cost of nursing time versus cost of some of these devices that are very expensive. Um, So I think that's one of the the biggest barriers. The other is um, in maintaining coolness. Often we induce shivering, and that needs to be treated. There's a number of ways you can do that. But when patients start shivering because their temperature is too low, um, which is really your goal to get their temperature down, but when they start to shiver, it undoes the effects of the hypothermia because it increases their temperature again. So I think that's some of the larger barriers. And then there are some uh, abnormal lab values and, and secondary types of quality that can develop um, when using hypothermia. A lot of the other concerns, I would say, there, there, people used to think that there was a barrier that you couldn't feed people or that it would increase infection. Um, but truthfully, it has been shown that Patients receiving targeted temperature management, and even if they're being cold um, a couple degrees down to 34, 35 degrees, um, they do not develop those GI complications. It's possible it could slow motility, but they really haven't found that to be a big problem. As far as infection and not utilizing it because um, it was initially thought that hypothermia would increase infection risk by decreasing immune response. And that really just hasn't happened. There does seem to be a decrease in certain markers, but when an infectious agent is uh, developing in the patient, when they're getting an infection, we do still see changes and that immune response is activated. So you see those infection markers rising again.
1: That's interesting. You know, my own practice, one of the challenges that I've Uh, experience has been communicating and discussing with the family what targeted temperature management means. What advice do you have to the providers and the bedside nurses and how to talk to the families about what we're doing and why we're doing it?
2: I think it's important to try to find layman terms to describe the benefits that we see. That if we can The patients look uncomfortable. I think it's a lot better now if you can get an intravascular device because the patient looks less uncomfortable uh, than some of these other devices or even the blankets that make it look cold. Um, So I I do think that appearance to family members, if if their loved one looks cold or is shivering, it, it makes them be more concerned. So I think if we can treat those... Uh, give the appearance that they're not as cold and definitely control the shivering that helps and then I think you just have to really explain the important importance of this that while we are lowering the temperature it's not something that the person will likely remember and it does help to stabilize the brain and protect the brain so that there is better brain recovery and that's why we're doing this and I think most families um come around to the idea that while it looks like their loved one is in distress, this really is the best thing for them, and it will lead to a better outcome.
1: You know, as we wrap up here, I was wondering if there's anything uh, that we didn't talk about that you think is important for uh, the listener to hear, and maybe if you could give us all three takeaways about targeted temperature management and the intracranial hemorrhage, that would be excellent.
2: Well like I would like to just mention, I think there are other situations where therapeutic hypothermia can and is used. Um, specifically, it can be used for intracerebral hemorrhage, but also there's a little work in subarachnoid hemorrhage showing it may be efficacious. There is some work in traumatic brain injury that is has been somewhat inconsistent, but I think there is a population or a subpopulation of that traumatic brain injured group that will benefit from therapeutic hypothermia and targeted temperature management. Um, It has been trialed in ischemic stroke with inconsistent results. And there's actually work looking at use of targeted temperature management in spinal cord injury, which I think is really exciting. You know, these neurologic tissue doesn't recover as well as others. So I think it's really important to take advantage of every tool that we have. I think it as long as we monitor patients closely and monitor how we cool and rewarm and sort of where we keep their temperature, it is safe. It does require some extra steps and extra attention, but I think it's a safe way to go. And given the current platform we have for treatment and, and limitations of the in the treatment of brain and spinal cord injuries, um, I think it's a good tool. It's another tool to have. Um, and then I think, Go talk to your administrators and talk about budget because the more expensive devices, such as the intravascular devices, which is really, well, yes, it is a catheter, so there is an infection risk, but it also is the uh, most effective way to get someone to target temperature and then maintain them. Um, they are expensive. So go talk to your administrators and take some of that evidence out there. There is evidence in the literature that shows these are effective because that's really the best way um, to help your patients. And the only other thing I would like to mention is there is a n- somewhat newer uh, concept or, or method approach. There is this uh, intranasal cooling where they use a coolant oxygen mixture and administer it by nasal cannula, and certainly I would think you could put it through a ventilator um, as well, but um, they have found that if they put this intranasal cooling cooling system on patients post-cardiac arrest in the ambulance, this is out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, it actually works pretty well to bring down their temperature and can be used to maintain them. So I think that intranasal cooling is a a really interesting new Approach and technology that we'll be seeing more of.
1: Dr. Alexander, I want to thank you for uh, the fascinating history and also the things that we have to look forward to in targeted temperature management. This concludes another edition of the Eye Critical Care podcast. For the Eye Critical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Kyle Enfield.
0: Phillips and Massimo have teamed up to provide a non invasive continuous hemoglobin monitoring solution that seamlessly integrates into your critical care workspace. The solution combines the innovative monitoring capabilities of Philips Intelliview with advanced Massimo Rainbow Set technology to provide real-time visibility to changes or lack of changes in a patient's hemoglobin concentration. To learn more, visit philips.com slash Massimo.
3: Kyle Enfield, MD. Kyle Enfield, M.D., is an associate professor of medicine in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care at the University of Virginia. He received his undergraduate degree from the University of Oklahoma. He received his joint medical and master's degrees in epidemiology at the University of Oklahoma Health Science Center and went on to complete his residency and fellowship at the University of Virginia. In July of 2013, Dr. Enfield was appointed as the medical director of the Medical Intensive Care Unit at the University of Virginia. From 2009 through July 2016, he was the assistant hospital epidemiologist there, and he remains the co-medical director of the Special Pathogens Unit. Dr. Enfield's clinical interests are in critical care medicine and transport of critically ill patients. His academic interests are the epidemiology and prevention of healthcare-associated conditions, including multi-drug resistant organisms acquisition and healthcare-associated infections. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Speak with a customer service representative or visit sccm.org/membership for more information. The Eye Critical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members.